Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. Our goal on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and actionable tools that you can implement with your teams right away. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'll be your host. Each episode, I'll interview a senior leader or a thought leader that will help you elevate your ability to lead people and drive your organization's strategy forward. Our partner is Cascade Strategy. They're our favorite tool for tracking and executing strategic plans, providing visibility for your entire team, and helping everybody have insight into where you're going and what you need to do to get there. If you're looking to improve your strategy execution, visit smestrategy.net slash cascade for a link for a free 90-day trial so you can see for yourself if you enjoy it and it helps your team move forward. So with that, I want to thank you again for joining us, and we'll get into today's guest. Welcome, folks. Thanks so much for joining us on today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Today, live with my guest, John Rossman. John, how are you today? Anthony, great to see you. Great to see you. I I like the growth and everything. You look very distinguished. So. (laughs) Well, John is a repeat guest on our podcast. The last time we spoke about a year ago, right in the middle of the pandemic. And I'm so excited to be able to chat with you again to learn more about, you know, everything you've been working on. So John is the author of the Amazon Way Amazon's 14 Leadership Principles, his most recent book. Um, He's a former executive with Amazon, helps support the merchant program and really was critical in in being part of the team that support Amazon's growth and and just on a personal level, just a stand-up guy. And I really like him. So with that, John, tell us a little bit about yourself. Anything that I might have missed there? I I, I mean, you know, only 55 years of other things, but yeah, yeah, no, nothing really like so yeah, I was an executive at Amazon. I helped launch and scale the marketplace business. I also ran the enterprise business where we ran other large retailers infrastructure for them. And when I left Amazon in late 2005, I started working with my clients on innovation and make a change happen. And it was several years after I left Amazon that a client of mine at the Gates Foundation came to me and said, you know, John, you ought to write a book because you do a nice job of kind of taking the little nuggets and inserting them into our work. And so we wrote in 2014, we wrote the first edition of the Amazon way, which is telling the story of Amazon's kind of culture and my story at Amazon and what others can take from Amazon through the lens of the leadership principles. Well, we just released the third edition of that book has several new additions and some updates to it, but it continues to be kind of a a nice lightweight read. I always say like my design principle on this book was somebody should be able to read it on an airplane with one glass of wine. And so it goes pretty quickly, but all my work is everything. It's not about Amazon. It's about like, what do we need to do as a leadership team, as our thinking around management science, which are is the techniques we apply to manage our, our business and our culture, which is kind of like how we work together to create a better growth agenda and innovation agenda for our business, which is, you know, the offense that I like to work with my clients on. 
Mm, I love that. And I really like having read both books and you have three books, I'm pretty sure, but having read two of the books, what I really like about it, A, it's super easy to read, but like from a personal level, like I can hear you talking, but at the same time, when you talked about going on offense, I can literally flip to any page of the book and I can read a chapter and it's like a new play. If I just focused on that one thing, I would get something that would, and it would just be a new approach. Even though I'd heard it in a different way, this was like, huh. Every time. So I'm super excited to be able to, to chat and, and, and hear about that. Just want to welcome all of our guests since we're doing today's live. So if you're in the chat today, be sure to say hi, see where you're from. If you're on YouTube, be sure to say hi, see where you're from. And then after the episode, we're going to be uh, talking in our community and sort of having a conversation around uh, what John has shared with us today. So let's start off with the start. What has been new for you in your business over the past 12 months? What have you seen through COVID? How have you seen leadership need to adapt over the past year and a bit? Well, for, for me personally, what really changed was kind of, you know, half my business is keynote speaking, half my business is advisory work. And I, I kept that advisory work pretty small because the demand of kind of traveling most every week to do a keynote was was pretty significant. Oh, you can see my dog in the background now. And, you know, while the keynote business is down a little bit, it's actually up in a lot of ways because of, of webinars. And it's allowed me to engage a lot more and a lot deeper with my clients and some of the strategy work that I do with them. So that's kind of what's new for me I actually, I, I have a newsletter. It's a, a Substack newsletter called The Digital Leader. And I just wrote my week and released my weekly article. Um, and it's about online ordering. It's a specific scenario about order online and pick up in store and about like what sucks about that experience. And I think the, the general theme of what I get to is it's been really cool to see the advancement and the adoption of a number of these kind of multi-channel scenarios that we've, we've, we've been working at for a long, long time, but the pandemic really accelerated those. But I honestly think they are still really version 1.0 of both what the customer experience is, as well as what the operating experience is, right? Like how do you actually make it a profitable business? Because if you look at just like online groceries, the all of the order online, pick up at store, order online, have delivered, all of those transactions actually have a negative margin to it, right? And so so it's it, it can't be a sustainable thing or you know the grocery stores are not going to be encouraging the advancement or the adoption of these because they run a negative margin. And so I, I, I kind of work like, well, you know, what is it about the customer experience that could be improved and could that improve the actual business model along with it? So in the, in the article, I, I work it from just a problem statement standpoint. And, and that's one of the things that I work with my clients on a lot is if you think about there, there's kind of generally two spaces that you operate in when you're in kind of the improvement game or the innovation game. One is kind of the problem space and the other is the solution space, right? And everybody loves to make the time and the energy we spend in the problem space as short as possible because we all want to get and think we know what the right solutions are. And I think the magic in, in quote unquote innovating, being creative, really understanding what the solutions could be much deeper is staying in the problem space a little bit longer 
and not an original concept of mine. A lot of people, especially in the lean product playbook, they talk about it, but I'm, I'm leaning in on that notion a bit, helping to give some tools and approaches of like, don't stay in the problem space for long, but a little bit longer in a little bit more deliberate manner to better understand the customer, the circumstances, and it opens up your eyes to a number of real root causes that helps you be better at the solutioning aspect. Hmm. So I really take out of that what, what you're seeing is that need to play in the digital space and solve problems in the digital world, which obviously have human beings in the physical world, you know, challenges associated with it. And, and I would say like, you know, these things aren't one or the other, they're combined, right? Like these multi-channel, like these are start as a digital experience there's a real physical process and physical experience and there's a tail end digital aspect of it and and you know the relatively simple ones are either the pure play online or pure play physical experience it's the it's the multi-channel the integrated aspects of it that are really the future and it goes way beyond retail right like every business has these opportunities of engaging and serving your customers in multiple ways. And it both has to be a great customer experience and it has to be a great business. Those, those, are, those things do not have to be one or the other. In fact, you, you, the challenge, the creative challenge is how to make it both, right? Both a great customer experience and a winning business proposition. That's where the constraints are and, and why you need to stay in the problem space a little longer. Absolutely. So coming through COVID and being in it and obviously like having everybody shift from, we'll call it in person to online, just like how they run their business. And now we are moving through it. And this idea of, you know, we'll use the word hybrid, but I think it's like the digital physical realm. And then you touched on the problem and then the solution space, which is not an either or it's probably both, you know, what, what are some of the principles that you would sort of share with leaders as they look at being successful in this new hybrid world? Because I don't think it's going back to purely physical. You know, what are some of those considerations that people can, you know, take away and say, hey, what do I need to think about if I want to be successful in the next year, two years, and dare we say 25 years? Yeah, a, a few things come to mind. One is that I think the future of a lot of great customer experiences is across multiple products and across multiple services and therefore across multiple enterprises. So we all need to get good at the things, the mechanisms that allow us to do cross integrated customer experiences. And so the example I, I, I oftentimes talk about is Amazon several years ago now had this beta program in Germany that was a partnership between Audi, DHL, and Amazon and allowed a customer to order an item and have it delivered to their car that was parked someplace else, right? And that to me is just a great exemplar of the types of use cases that we're gonna want to be able to light up in the future. And so we all have to get good at the, both the technical things that go along, but it's more about the business and the legal things that go along with those situations and the change and the alignment that you have to get to make those great situations. So that's one thing. The other thing is, is thinking broader about the customer experience and in particular, really understanding like, what does it mean to be a customer centric organization or to balance out kind of our 
our product or service orientation with a bit more of a customer experience, customer centricity uh, mindset. And so I've seen, I've been working with a number of, of teams and companies on, you know, what does it really mean to be customer centric and why is that important? And, and what sort of changes should we be looking for, you know, both as inputs into that, as well as the results, the outputs of being more customer centric. So I think that those are a couple of mega trends that I see going forward out of this, not all of the, the trends, but I think thinking bigger and about the customer experience and being willing to, to take more control, experiment more, have all these multiple paths that customers want to take and using that as the springboard for how do we grow our business? How do we compete differently? How do we expand the, the way that we participate in our customers' lives? You know, that's the innovative technique that is applicable to, to most companies. Mm. And I think that's something that's really uh, interesting that you shared is the word participate in our customers' lives. This perception of, hey, I've got a widget. I'm going to deliver you widget. I need to convert it. And I think through COVID and just through everybody's changes, the way their life changed, and for you to be successful, the universal you, you need to be able to fit within this new way of living, working, being. Would you say, you know, that's important? And do you see that continuing? Yeah, I, I, I think at its worst case, understanding our customer in a deeper way and the broader pressures, experiences, job that they're trying to get done makes us a more uh, empathetic, aware, and uh, better operating company. But there's a lot more value to doing those things than just that, because it's through exploring the, you know, the job to be done that we see new ways to serve those customers. And if we can take those signals and go, okay, what do we do relative to it? That's the, the, the wellspring for innovation ideas to come from. And that's like a little 1% improvement. If you can get that profitability, then it just starts popping up everywhere. It's just, sometimes it's a 1% improvement. Sometimes it's a whole new customer segment or channel or new revenue stream, new business model, right? Which, which is both riskier, but has some higher upside to it too. And so it can be the entire continuum from kind of incremental improvement through a new business model. Hmm, I get that. So we talk about the job to be done. We talked about customers. We talked about living in the problem. Do you consider employees customers and how do you address, you know, aligning your employees with, with this vision and obviously being the tenant of the book, the leadership principles. So how do you meld all of that together? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, there could be multiple perspectives on this, right? So, so there's not a right or wrong answer, but in my experience, I think it's problematic to think of your personas of a customer as, as your employees. As a business, we exist to serve our customers and to make a business. Separate from that, in addition to that, we need to have a great mission, culture, employee experience. But don't mix those two things up, right? Mm -hmm. Which kind of gets to the Amazon Way book a little bit because in the new edition, I made a suggestion to Amazon in the um, 
preface, which is something I've never done before. And what I suggested as a strategic move, not as a not as a criticism to Amazon, was a new leadership principle. And I, I, I riffed off of the golden rule and I contributed this leadership principle. And I'm not saying it's because of the preface I wrote, but I didn't have the benefit of either Amazon's last shareholder letter or what they announced two weeks ago when I was writing this this preface. So I can say I came to this on my own. That I can factually say. But ironically, a couple of weeks ago, Amazon, two new leadership principles. The, the scope of my one suggested leadership principle covers the, the scope of their two leadership principles. And I applaud them for that um, because when you are a principles-led organization, and I would suggest Amazon is, then change starts with defining, changing, adding to your leadership principles. And so the two that they added were strive to be the Earth's best employer and success and scale bring broad responsibility. And so I, I think even Amazon is in that, is addressing the fact, hey, we've got to think about the employee experience as a separate thing from customer obsession or deliver results. Mm, I get that. So on the subject of incorporating those principles within your own organization. So we've got people on the call from all over the world. Some are for-profit, some are not-for-profit. You know, how does one begin to create those principles within their organization? What do they need to reflect on? What do they need to consider? And what do they need to avoid as they go through that? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is in no way have I ever suggested that Amazon's leadership principles are the right leadership principles, either in total or in singular nature for anybody else. They work for Amazon. And the reason they work for Amazon is because they, uh, they built those leadership principles with intentionality, right? They were planful and thoughtful. When I was at Amazon, the leadership principles weren't codified. They weren't written down, but we were practicing them every day. Like we were figuring out like, well, what, how do we hold each other accountable? How do we make decisions, bringing in new talent and new recruits into our organization? So we were figuring out these leadership principles. And so the answer to your question is, I think the process of building your leadership principles is as important as what you end up with your leadership principles being. Mm. Um, and so I wrote a new appendix in the Amazon way, specifically about how to build your own leadership principles. And I approach a, you know, I take it from a very, you know, agile, iterative approach. And, and you know, the basic underlying tenant is draft them, test them, live with them for a while, and then revisit them. And after a while, it'll become obvious to you, okay, what do we really need for our leadership principles to deliver for us to build our, our to deliver to our mission as an organization? And so I kind of outline it in a little deeper sense about how to go about building your own leadership principles. And it's actually some work I've been doing with a one big global company and one mid-sized company about this process of leadership principles. And they both you know, talk about staying in the problem space a little longer versus jumping to solutions. They both want to immediately start declaring these are our, our leadership principles. And it's everything I can do to just say, like, 
you know, do you really mean that word? Like when, so when you say you are committed to this, like, let's just play out a couple of scenarios, a couple of use cases, right? Like if this happened and that happened, that happened, how, how would you use a leadership principle? Oh, I don't know if I could, I could live to that bar I specified in the leadership principle in that particular case. Okay, great. Then we have some work to do on specifying the leadership principle, right? And so, again, it's just kind of approaching it with intentionality and understanding that the reason we build principles is so that we can drive our culture through a common approach to how we work together, how we approach the market, how we hold each other accountable, how we make decisions, what we prioritize. That's what good leadership principles help us do on a broad scale basis so that we're a faster organization that's more consistent. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it was, again, so many great gems there for, for those of you, those of you listening is, you know, it's a bar. Like when you have those principles, you really need to test it against the people who are leading. Because if you have leaders that are falling under the bar, then not only are your employees not going to listen, but then it creates a, a new different set of rules for the leadership. And then you just get a whole whack of problems. Another piece is, again, it helps that decision making, helps you move faster, helps go through it. And then the other thing that I thought was really interesting is the, you know, the Amazon application of it is that they've had these principles for a long time. They added new principles such that they could fit within their employees journey and the journey of the company. So very thoughtful, rolled it out, communicated it, revised, reviewed, make sure we're still living it, added new ones, communicated it out. And I think it's so important that where I see a challenge and I'd be interested in your perspective on this. When some people say I put something on paper and they never deviate from it. So there's sort of two people, some who are really flexible and some say this is it and it never changes. How do you see the importance of both having that rigidity, but also that fluidity and especially when it comes to, to leadership principles? Yeah. I, um, one of the risks you run with a set of principles or rules or metrics even, right. Or goals is that they become single-sided, one-dimensional. One, one and so what happens is you always optimize or go that path. And so what you really need is you need a balance of goals or principles or metrics or objectives. And with principles, you have to know which ones to use at the right times, right? And so I don't, that's why I don't think it's too many to have 10 or 15 principles, because I think you need multiple dimensionalities of them and they need to be clear enough that you can actually action against them, right? And so one of the mistakes organizations make is they go, hey, you know, we've got four principles, right? Like do the right thing, be a good citizen, don't break the law, you know, whatever it is, right? Well, those are too vague, right? If you're trying to really make a change, you have to be very pronounced and specific and to some degree provocative in what that change is going to be. And so it, I think it oftentimes takes a little deeper specification on what the leadership principle is. That's why I like Amazon's leadership principles, because it's not just the headline, but it's the wording behind it, right? So like one of the leadership principles is, which one should we pick on here? 
let's pick on our right a lot, right? So it's the fourth leadership principles. And it reads like, you, you could go, oh, it's just our right a lot. Well, no, you actually have to read the paragraph behind it. Leaders are right a lot. They have strong judgment and good instincts. They seek diverse perspectives and work, work to disconfirm their beliefs. That last sentence, I think, is a real nugget of like something you need to do, which is, in a systematic way, bring in alternative points of view on a consistent point, on a consistent basis, just so you're educating yourself, right? You're, you're, you're welcoming in new ideas, diverse perspectives. You keep a, a little bit of a beginner's mindset in your work. So you, you actually have to specify these bigger than just like, don't do evil or whatever it is, right? Those are too vague in order for people to consistently operate to them. And so not that they're a bad notion, they just aren't clear enough to actually drive consistent techniques on how we do things. And so, you know, the other thing you do when you're specifying principles is you always think about the mechanisms, right? Like, well, what are the little things or programs, techniques we do in order to live and practice and create habits out of, uh, out of a principle. And so what I'm interested in, in, in Amazon's two new leadership principles, and, and, I, and I give them time on this and everything, right? Which is, which is like, so, so how do those two leadership principles manifest themselves? Like what are, the, what are the mechanisms that they do in order to really make those real in the organization? Hmm. No, that, that makes sense. And I think what I hear it as, and it's a simplified way, it's sort of ground rules and understanding. And out of that last one was saying, you know, that we question ourselves, because I know, and I'm sure you've seen when you go into rooms with smart people who often know the answer, know the answer, that it challenging them doesn't work. There's no space for that. And what I really like out of that leadership principle, it explicitly says as a ground rule, we are going to challenge ourselves in not knowing because I know it just, it sucks the air out of the room when, when you can't challenge somebody. And, um, and, it's, and it's one of the biggest limiters and risks to a business, which is saying we know it all, right? And that's the expert mindset. And the hardest thing to do is to work with a very successful company, a very successful leader who doesn't, who doesn't have kind of this humble notion of the beginner's mindset because they say they want to make change happen, but they, they really aren't open to changing what they do, you know, and stuff, right? Like, so how do we, how do, we do something different without changing anything that we do or that we learn <laughs> that we believe in, right? Like, that's, that, that's an impossible combination, I think. So I've got a question that is, you know, for a friend of mine, but it's actually for a friend of mine, is, you know, they've got, they've, they've grown a lot. They've as they've added these new staff, like a significant amount, like 25% growth, the values of these new staff, and we'll call it experience, do not line up with the expectations of the experienced ones. The guys who've been in there, been in the trenches for a long time, you get some new people. We don't have the same way of working, but we needed to call it the bodies. Solution, a potential solution is let's run a training program. Like let's teach people more stuff. To those people and anybody else who wants to teach their people more stuff in order to solve what I would call a cultural problem, is that the right approach? Is it a hybrid approach? Should they be living more in the problem mindset? What, what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, it, it depends on how they arrived at that approach. You, you know, I think certainly training, you know, is hard to argue against the value of that. But but my guess is that doesn't really solve the situation, the problem. It's a, it's a good step, but you probably need a lot more than that, starting with why is the job so difficult, right? That would be one thing. Secondly, you know, how do you provide mentorship? How do you start them with the easy stuff so they get the basics and then advance them, progress them to maybe the more complex scenarios that they have, have to happen, right? Like there's all sorts of techniques and supports that might need, need to be considered in order to really solve the problem. And it's by understanding that that's would be one of the benefits of staying in the problem space a little longer as you really come to understand, well, what's the real problem we're trying to, to deal with here. And you're going to come away with a much richer set of concepts in how do you really get at the root cause and then the steps to take to, to solve for the root cause. Cause something as, as if it's as simple as training, great, but that kind of sounds like, hey, let's just do the most obvious thing, and then we can can say we did our job, you know, and everything. Yeah, and you had mentioned it earlier, and I, I don't remember what the exact word was, but something to the effect of being in the process and observing the process, not just the outcome. So now we're coming down on time. We do have a question in the chat, which is around, you know, other, so I'm going to read it, but then I'm going to ask you a question to preface it. Okay. So the question is, is Amazon too big to fail? Other big organizations have gone through the same business life cycle. So before I sort of put that question on the table, I want to talk about the idea of profitability coming out of COVID, which is one of the chapters in your book, coming out of COVID, you know, it's been a big hit. On, on businesses, not only for the, the sustainability part, but also because the machine that they built might not have been sufficient to support that. So outside of looking at Amazon specifically around it being too big to fail, what do you say to, you know, the importance of profitability and I dare I say adaptability as we move into a new digital physical realm of business? Yeah, I think it's really being clear about are we trying to optimize for the short term or for the long term? And, and, and there's no wrong answer in that. The wrong answer is if we say we're optimizing for the long term, but then really the way people are rewarded and evaluated is for short term measures, then you have a misalignment. And so the most important thing is just being clear on like, what are we trying to optimize for? What's our strategy to do that and getting everybody on that same playbook? Because there are definitely times when profitability is the game plan, right? Uh, I, I worked for 13 years for a restructuring company, and a lot of our clients were in crisis companies, crisis from a cash flows standpoint, right? And so, yeah, it was all short-term thinking and short-term actions. So that was the right playbook for them. You just got to be clear on on what the right strategy is and, and make sure that your actions are aligned with what the right strategy is. Cool. I think that makes tons of sense and that you have to be adaptable because there's some times where you got to be strategic, long term, big picture. And there's sometimes you got to put the fire out on the house. And, and what the, the typical dis, lack of alignment is, is that we say, hey, we're building for the future. We're innovating these things. We're going to be patient. We're going to focus on adoption and everything. But then when it comes to budgeting or valuations, 
it's all about the here and now and everything, right? And and so it's like, why would anybody want to be associated with the long-term stuff if at the end of the day we're all just rewarded, evaluated on the short-term stuff? Like that's 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 what typically happens in organizations is they run the the you know quarterly management science investor related playbook that isn't aligned to long-term investing in innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if anybody has any questions in the chat, you can put them in there just as, as we finish up. John might stick around. So, for I, a didn't, I didn't answer the question about uh, is Amazon too big to fail, right? And Shoot. so from my standpoint, that notion is about what, what is typically used in terms of like the financial liquidity of, you know, our, our country, the United States in this case, or a country uh, in in any other case. And so I don't think the analogy exactly works for Amazon because at its core, it does, it's not infrastructure that supports the, the liquidity, the financial liquidity of an economy. But I do think, and, and the pandemic largely showed this, which is at times Amazon felt like an, a necessary utility, right? They were, they were core to delivering core capability, food, groceries, retail items, plus compute need that was needed and things like that. So I, I do think that if they failed, we would all feel it. But I don't think that's a, an invitation for, for government, you know, more government oversight or overreach for that particular reason. I do think that there is some new policies that need adjustment and new 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 laws and enforcement of current laws that is needed across the board relative to these new breed of companies that don't fit under current you know anti-competitive or monopoly behavior but we know we need to keep competitive balance in our in our environments but but the current situation is is risky relative to that but that's not on Amazon to solve for. That's on our policymakers to solve for, right? And and so, you know, that that's how I think about that question. It's a good question. Cool. That's a very interesting perspective. Like, you know, when you think about a business that has become so essential to 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 life. My wife got a package, actually got two packages yesterday that were supposed to come in the same order. And she's like, oh, you know, I told her I'd, I'd say this already. She's like, oh, it came in two packages because, you know, they're inefficient. And I was like, you probably okay. ordered this yesterday and it showed up today. And she's like, oh, yeah. And it's like, yeah, like just crazy. So that, cool. That, that's, cool. Why, that's why, you know, they put in place that prime day program, right? So that more orders got batched together, fewer deliveries to customers, you know, and so that's the the little role we can play in helping to, you know, optimize for that is, you know, use your prime day and only have your deliveries done once a week from Amazon and that'll help with that. Hmm. Yeah, I got that. Do you got time for one more question? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, sweet. Uh, I believe it's Sonia. Otherwise, it's Sonia. I apologize if I mispronounce it. Asks, is there anything specific that most mid-sized to big companies need to focus on when developing their strategy plans now in a semi-post-pandemic times? Yeah, I think about um, horizons of investment or innovation, right? And so I always think about, you know, our business for the next one to three years, our business for the three to five years on our business post five years. What you do in those different horizons needs to be very different things, right? 
but most companies don't have kind of that horizon view of their businesses and how to invest in the right way, at the right notion, for the right reasons across those different horizons. That's that's a, a kind of a portfolio technique that most companies don't have as they're thinking about kind of strategy and an innovation portfolio. Yeah. So like a sh- yeah, short, medium, long term, but in a, in a different way, like thinking about it. But I like the horizons because it helps people. They find it's like a telescope. Telescope gives you big picture, no detail. Microscope gives you not a big picture, small detail. Being able to be, I think, adaptive is what I also heard you say is, you know, you can't just stick with one because if you stick with one, you're going to miss some detail. Well, that and the techniques of like what you do, how how you participate in those different horizons needs to be very different. You're trying to run programs through one consistent methodology when they need a different management science applied to them. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the, hey, turnaround versus long-term strategic thinking. You cannot use the same tool because you need a different tool because you have a different problem. So it all goes back to getting to really understand the problem you're trying to solve for. And then I really want just, you know, underscore the the customer experience part of it. They're really understanding who is involved in that process and how do you optimize for them. Anything else you want to say about that as we wrap up? That's perfect. Okay, rock and roll. So everybody watching, I highly encourage you pick up one of John's books, if not all of them. They're just so great. You're going to get tons of value from it. Worth the time, worth the money. And John, on a personal level, just great to see you again. I'm so grateful for you sharing with our audience. I know people got a lot out of it. If anybody wants to say thank you to John, put it in the chat. Any other final pieces? And then uh, Jason will put the link to the community, link to the book, and a link to a place to learn more about John. John, what do you want to say to our listeners as we finish up today? Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity for everything you and, and please connect. Like it's, it's easy to connect. Just hit me up on LinkedIn, John Rossman, and, you know, let me know if you want to talk some more. Fantastic. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today with author of the Amazon way, Amazon's 14 leadership principles, John Rossman, John Thank you so much. It's been such a blast. And I appreciate you being here today. Nice seeing you again. Thanks. And everyone else, be sure to check out our next webinar, which is how companies can use marketing to grow in 2021 with Mehak Fohra. And I look forward to seeing you. Once again, thank you to our guest, John Rossman. My name is Anthony Taylor. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. And we'll see everybody next time. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I wanted to make sure that you knew about our signature course that will help you better align your team and get them bought into your strategic plan. It's presented really simply that whether you're a seasoned veteran or brand new to strategic planning, it'll help you better understand it, it'll help your team think more strategically, and it'll help you better prioritize and set goals. Ultimately, it's going to give you a plan that you can execute successfully. Because you have no idea how many plans that I see that look good, but are missing key components to make them successful. And we cover all of those missteps in the course. On top of all the video training, you'll get access to all of our workbooks and access to our knowledge base and community. Course is only $4.95 and you can get instant access to all of the videos. Plus you can use the code podcast for $100 off. Course comes with a 100% money back guarantee. If you don't get value from the course, let us know and we'll give you all of your money back. So go to smestrategy.net slash course 
Use the code podcast for $100 off. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to support you and your team in getting alignment and moving your strategic plan forward. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.